Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Would you please turn with me to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. I want to add my appreciation to Carol for this brave act. The children's message I hear, she tells me that Lady Pirate heard that the children were returning in person today, and she took off to the far seas. And only someone as brave as Carol could take her place. I want to add my uh, inter- uh, invitation to you as well to come to the, the noonday services beginning tomorrow. There'll be a lunch offered, the 30-minute service, 10-minute sermon, which Jackie says is the ideal length sermon. And uh, it's wonderful uh, messages, wonderful services every day to get you ready for uh, Monday, Thursday night, Good Friday, the silent service, and Easter resurrection celebration on Easter Sunday morning. If you can't come, if your work will not allow you, maybe you can live stream those services at noon, but please take advantage of them. It's a great time to ready your heart for the tremendous celebration we will have next Sunday morning, beginning with the with the sunrise service at the Botanical Garden. And we will on that day also conclude our study of the book of Revelation with the final verses. Today we're only looking at two verses. We've been slowing down in this last chapter because John himself does as he goes back and, and recovers or reviews those exhortations that he gave us at the beginning of the book in the first three chapters as he's addressing all of the churches throughout Asia Minor, which represent all the churches of the world. There were five major exhortations he gave us, all of them motivated ultimately by grace. He told us uh, that we should repent of our addiction to falsehood. Why? Because God has given us the gift of truth. And he says that uh, we should do good works, not because God's going to love us more, but because the Father will be pleased and He'll praise us. He told us last, uh, the last time we studied in this chapter that we must persevere, persevere to the very end because the Father waits to welcome us and praise us. And today it's pretty simple. He calls us to love well because He has loved us first and He loves us best. Now to get this context before us. I want to go back and read some other verses. We'll begin in verse 6 and we'll conclude in verse 15, but we'll only be focused on 14 and 15 today. Revelation 22, listen as Jesus speaks to us in His Word. He said to me, that is, Jesus said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold wonderful things in this portion of the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray it, God's people said together, amen. A couple of years ago, I had a problem with the radio in my truck. It's one of those newfangled ones, you know, that's in the front and everything goes through this little screen. You have to control the heat and the cooling with it. You have to control the radio. You control everything with that little screen. And the screen went berserk uh, so that uh, everything, it tried to do everything all at once. It was out of sequence. And so it would try to turn on the air conditioner and the radio and the, and the directions and all of it at the same time. And so I was told that you have to reset it. So I would push the buttons and it would reboot it and it would do one thing at a time. Every time I would try to, I tried to turn the air conditioner on, I had to reboot it just to turn on the air conditioner. I had to, when I wanted to turn on the radio, I had to reboot it to turn on the, on the radio. If I wanted to turn up the air conditioner, I had to turn up the volume on the radio. Everything was all confused. I, I tried to download some updates and I tried to work with a technician on nothing worked. Finally, I had to take it to the dealer, and the dealer had to replace the disc or the chip. It's back when you could get chips. It was a new chip. And then everything worked well. Everything worked fine. And occasionally now there are updates that, that come, and I push that button, and things work fine. Everything was out of sequence. And it took a master technician to change its inner workings so that the sequence could be, the sequencing, the prioritizing could be put back in order. Now, St. Augustine, who lived in the fourth century, we've referred to many times in this study, wrote about the city of God versus the city of man. Those who are inside the city of God are those who are believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who are in the city of man are those who continue to refuse to receive that free gift of salvation. He talked about reading an essay or, or, or a conversation by a philosopher named Cicero when he was 19 years old. And Cicero made this observation that everybody, every human being is born happy, but ends their life in a wretched state of discontentment. 
Everybody born, is born into, into the world and begins happy, but ends life in a state of wretched discontentment. And, and that disturbed Augustine, and he set out to find the source of discontentment. It wasn't until he became a Christian that he understood the source of discontentment as well as the source of happiness. And he said, you know what you've usually called it. He said, you, you've usually explained it. You Christians have explained it as sin. But what is sin actually? And Augustine said, sin is the disordering of loves. Sin is disordered love or love out of sequence. Love wrongly prioritized. And the only way that it can be put back rightly, the, way it, the only way it can be ordered is for your heart to be removed. That chip that is, that is broken, that is skewed, that is constantly sending you in the wrong or inappropriate direction, it's to be replaced with a new heart from Christ. And it is that heart which the Lord Jesus is constantly updating, retuning, reprioritizing so that we love rightly. The way it is now, he says, with, without the Holy Spirit, without conversion, we love things that we should not love. We don't love things that we should love. Or we love things that, we, that are appropriate to love, but we love them less than we should. Or we love other things more than we should. This is the profound problem that, that John is addressing in these two verses we look at today, verses 14 and 15. The disaster of disordered love. And the only way that we can be repaired, the only way that disordered love can be reordered is by the love of God. The love of God is what exposes disordered love. And it is the love of God manifested in Jesus Christ that defines true love. Just those two simple but profound points made in these two verses. Look at where John boldly confronts the disordered love of those to whom he is writing and to us as well. He says in verse 15, here is, here is a description, here is a is a, a, a kind of summary of disordered love. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is not an exhaustive list of disordered love. Uh, John himself has given us two other lists in which he mentions similar things but it captures the major themes of Scripture, of what it looks like when our love is not ordered, when our lives are not ordered by the love of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, we will be outside. As long as we remain in this state of disordered love, we will be outside of the family of God. It may look like we're on the inside, may look like we're going to church, but we will be outside of that place in which we will truly experience love. We will be in that place instead that tries to replace the love that God offers us, the reliable love in Jesus Christ, with our own definitions of love, and we will be constantly disappointed and in the end 
profoundly and eternally disappointed and in agony forever because we will be eternally outside of the family for which we were created. We will be unwelcomed. Here's how it works. It all began in the garden. When God said uh, he, he made us to live in dependence upon him. He said, I want you to trust me for everything. You can trust me to supply everything. I've made the whole world to give. And what did Adam and Eve do? No, the Lord is withholding from us something. And so they tried to take. And when they did, they became locked into, imprisoned in a perpetual life of taking, lust for power, greed, trying to secure their own destiny. And God says, what happens is when we follow our own agenda, when we fail to trust the Lord's love, that He is the one who provides everything for us exactly as we need it in Jesus Christ, then it eventuates in acts like these, like sorcery, sexual immorality, murder, and idolatry. Now, what are these things? You say, I don't consult any Ouija boards or tarot cards or so forth. You may, though. It is becoming more common with the curiosity of the Internet, more and more people dabbling in the occult. But the devil is just as content that you don't dabble in those things, that you, that you instead do what is true sorcery, and that is to pursue power. To pursue power for yourself so that you don't have to trust in God. And it eventually manifests itself by your redefining what God says is right for you into what you say is right. Replacing the good news of Jesus Christ with your own good news. It can happen even in the church of Jesus Christ. That people take the very good things of Scripture and because they, they disturb their sensitivities and, and make their way of life unsettled, they can redefine them as something that is anti-gospel and say, no, the gospel is instead this. It is possible for those even in the walls of the church to participate in sorcery. The devil, I mean, the, Paul warned. He said, I want, to, I want the Lord to grant you repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth because some of you are being held captive by him to do his will. A mark of disordered love is taking your eyes off of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to supply you everything and whom you can trust even if He's taking you through suffering and instead say, I don't like trusting you like that. I want life my way. So I'm going to redefine what you say and I'm going to start living according to my own gospel, my own good news. This is exactly what the devil tempted the Lord Jesus with. When he said, bow down to me, and I'll allow you to, to bypass all of the suffering, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, you only love God. There's only one who loves me perfectly. There's only one, therefore, I'm going to love in response, and that is the one whom I worship. Now, these other things are more obvious to us, aren't they? Murder is obviously a disordered love except that often we forget that the Lord Jesus also called hurting one another with our tongues a form of murder. 
because we attack the image of God in someone else. Sexual immorality, using someone else for our own gratification or reducing someone else just to their sexual function or having sex with someone without that commitment that occurs only in marriage. This was a radical shifting of the culture with the Christians who said sex is reserved for those who commit to one another for life. And it is only in that context that sex can be engaged in without doing damage to another person's psyche and their personhood. And then he puts together at the end idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. These are, in Scripture, used together often. False speaking and false living. John is addressing particularly those that we saw over and again in those first seven churches, those who claim to be Christians and who want to to claim that they're followers of Christ until the going gets rough, until it costs them something, until it costs them social ostracism or costs them financially. He says, you are liars, and you're practicing falsehood. It's a form of idolatry, pretending that you worship the one true God, but lying with your life. And then he says this very thing that seems so insensitive to us, doesn't it? Outside are the dogs. This is a summary of all of these other descriptors that will follow. And a dog in the ancient world was not the way we generally regard dogs today as our pets, all of which go to heaven, by the way. But uh, these dogs in in the old world were just scavengers. They were only out for themselves. They only thought of themselves. And they were even willing to turn on one another in the pack for their survival. Jesus is warning that when Christ is not the Lord of your life, the first love, the one you love more than anyone else and the one whose love you trust more certainly than anyone else, then you will ultimately devolve into this selfishness that makes you more animal-like than bearing the image of God. Jesus demands to reorder the loves of our lives, and it's often uncomfortable. It's often unsettling. It will put you out of step with those around you because disordered love is the norm. And ordered love makes you look strange and fanatical at times. But it is the only way to live a flourishing life, and becoming more and more humanized by the one who created you to live in a way that is ultimately and eternally fulfilling. I visited with my dad yesterday who's in his early 90s and he's declining in his health as he has a right to do at this age. He's really slowing down. Some of my family were able to go with me, and we visited with him. So I've been reflecting a lot on his life lately. I've shared with you on occasion that he came to Christ through, uh, in part, by the pulpit ministry of this church under uh, Dr. 
DeWitt, or DeWitt as he calls him, and then grew under Sandy Wilson's preaching. Every Sunday he would tune in. But as I've reflected on my dad, I've seen this reordering of loves over the course of his life. Not just taking away things that he loved inappropriately, but things that he had in the wrong priority and still giving them back to him, but in a proper priority and more appropriately. For instance, I remember the day when on a Sunday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, he would play golf. He would eat lunch with us, go to church, eat lunch, and then he'd throw his golf bag in the back of his truck and off he'd play the rest of the day. And eventually, I saw his, his loves change. He still loved golf, but he loved his family more so that he spent the afternoon with us instead of spending the whole day on the golf course. I saw his, I didn't say it was before I was born, he was, he was prone to medicate with alcohol. And as he grew, as he experienced the love of his wife and eventually of children, he, he found greater joy in giving himself to others than thinking only about himself and trying to medicate his troubles away. But I really saw a change in his life when he came to Christ. As he, would, as he would make priority listening to God's Word every Lord's Day, here by listening to the TV broadcast first and then going to worship. And it, it became so dramatic that every time I came home from college, he was, he was so different, it would, it, would, it would unsettle me a bit. He thought more critically about what he had always taken to be a settled norm for political things. He began to view all of politics critically and to think about cultural issues critically and through the lens of Scripture, not just according to one party or another. I saw the way he loved my mother. I saw the way he loved me with his words. I saw the way he started treating his employees. Loves were put into different order. Some things were taken away, replaced by others. I saw deep repentance over his racism. I saw him talk openly about his parents and his grandparents to say, I love them. Here were where the, here's the places where they went wrong in their view of other people. And it was, it was unnerving to his friends, even to his family members. But this is the work that the Lord Jesus was doing as he drew his attention to himself and said, this is the way I love you, and this is the way you must love. You know what I now see? I see a man now finishing very well. Not because of his self-discipline, not because he's just a great guy, Because he yielded himself to the Lord's constant updates, even if it challenged his cherished notions, his cultural assumptions, put him out of step with his neighbors, put him at odds at times with his own family members. The Lord has rewired him in a beautiful way. It's what he wants to do with you. 
It begins with yielding yourself to the Lord's taking your heart of stone and replacing with a heart of flesh. As my professor used to say, don't give the Lord your heart. He didn't want your heart. He can't renovate it. He has to take out the old one and give you a new one. And then he starts reprioritizing your loves. He won't take away everything. He may put this other things in proper, proper order. But it'll never be a totally pleasant process. But it is ultimately very fulfilling. It's the only way to live. You don't want to be like this, do you? Outside. Yes, you have a lot more company outside. It's the way most of your neighbors are living. It's the way most everybody else is living. But to be outside, even in good company, with the people that you feel most comfortable with, in the end is to be considered a sorcerer, immoral, a murderer, an idolater, a liar. This is much better. It's in verse 14. Better than being outside is to be blessed, or the Bible's word for happy. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates. We touched on this verse briefly last week, but it begins not with being outside, but being welcomed. Or as the hymn says, the setting of Psalm 23, no more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. This is why Jesus wants to reorder your life and reorder your world, not to make your life miserable, to make you appear to just to be a fanatic. He wants to rewire you so you can be welcomed at home with Jesus, warmly welcomed. To be welcomed requires a kind of humility first. I remember a few years ago we were traveling through to visit uh, some, some um, family uh, on a, at a distance and we had to stop halfway and uh, we knew a family halfway. They found out that we were coming through and they said, why don't you stay with us? And, you know, I have this problem staying with other people because I, no matter how welcoming they are, I feel like I'm presuming on them. So I'd rather pay my way, you know. I don't like to pay my way, but I'd rather pay my way. And when we drove it, they insisted. They just would not allow us. They, were, they, would, they said they would publicly shame us if we didn't stay with them. And so we drove up to their front driveway, and there was a gigantic sign across the front that said, Welcome home. We thought, oh, I thought felt even worse. I said, here, their, their college children are coming home, and we're taking one of their bedrooms. I knew this was a bad idea. We walked in, and uh, we said, who's coming home today? Your, which child is coming home from college? And they said, all of our children are already home. The sign is for you, dummy. Welcome home. We've always said you're home. Now you, this is home. We feel that way with the Lord, don't we? We think someday, someday He's just going to open a back door and slip us into heaven and say, welcome home, but don't tell anybody you're here. 
Grace begins with that humility of saying, okay, I've tried to earn my own love. I've tried to make my way by the way I've determined I would be loved or how I will love. I've, I've, I've tried, to, tried to secure it for myself. But I accept your love. I welcome your welcome. Blessed are those, he said, who will, who will wash their robes. Wash their robes in what? In the blood of the Lamb, the righteousness that Jesus has secured for us. Jesus, when, he, when you receive Christ, you receive not only the righteousness that He, that he, he gave in your place on the, on the cross, which we'll meditate on heavily this week, but you receive the righteousness that He earned for you in living for you. He defeated every temptation. I've already talked about the temptation of the pride of life that the devil offered him. He said, fall down here and worship me and, and I'll let you bypass suffering. No, I trust the Lord even if he takes me through hard times. Uh, he, he defeated the, the lust of the eyes. That is, I'm not sure God loves me until I can see it in a way that is acceptable to me. And so the, the Lord Jesus said, no, I have been approved by the Father. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, I am, if, I, if I'm hungry, if I am suffering this fasting. I know the Lord approves of me. He defeated the lust of the flesh on our behalf. Jesus lived a righteous life in our place so that when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we get not only the righteousness that He received passively, earned passively for us on the cross, but we get the substitution of His active record so that Jesus, that the Father looks on us in judgment and He says, you've done everything. The great day says, you've done everything just right. Welcome home. And it'll be proven by the authorization that we will be given. You'll see it in verse 14, to the tree of life. We won't be sneaked in the back door. We'll be brought in the front gates as those who deserve to be there, not for our own doing, but for the substitution of His righteousness. And welcome to the tree of life that we were shunned from by means of our first parents because they failed the test. We will be given authority and a right to the tree of life because Jesus has fully earned it for us. And we'll no longer be cringing and, 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 and withdrawing and wondering if, if we're going to have enough. We'll no longer be living as orphans, but we will run into the arms of the Father, into the full presence of a holy God without any fear, without any burden to earn our keep. Because everything has been supplied for us and all of our loves properly ordered so that not only do we love perfectly, we receive the love of God in Christ perfectly. What's holding you back? 
Where do you feel threatened? Where do you feel like I've got to take a stand here and preserve my way of life? I've got to... I've got, to, I've got to protect myself. I can't give myself in this way. Somebody will think I'm... Somebody will take advantage of me. Let go. and Receive the welcoming love of the Lord Jesus who loves perfectly and is able to love you back into order. A few years ago, Billy Graham's funeral was held at the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte. There are a number of tremendous speakers at that funeral. My favorite was his second oldest daughter, or third oldest daughter, Ruth. Ruth said in her testimony that after 21 years, her first marriage ended in divorce. It was utterly devastating to her. It left her vulnerable. It left her, it left her with self-loathing. She was, she was alone and lonely. She decided to move with the family's encouragement to move closer to other families. She moved closer to her oldest sister, and uh, she got her involved in a, in a good church. And, and, and the pastor of that church introduced her, she said, to a very handsome bachelor. They, they advanced rapidly in their relationship and started talking about marriage very, very soon. And their fa- family members were saying, slow down, pump the brakes here, Ruth. You're, 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 you're wounded. You're reacting. Don't, don't get into a rebound relationship. She said her, her mother called her from Seattle. Uh, Dr. Graham called her from Tokyo and said, Ruth, just give us time to get to know him. Just, just slow down a little bit. What do they know, she said. I'm the one that's alone. I'm the one who is a single mom. I'm the one who's by myself, and I know how and what I need. I know love. She married him despite all of their protests, and within 24 hours, she said she realized she made a profound mistake. And within five weeks, she had to flee from him because she was in danger. She wanted to talk to her mom and dad, but she knew she had disappointed them, and she was a two-day drive back to North Carolina to their home. They live on the side of a, lived on the side of a mountain, and it's a winding path up to that Billy Graham home. And she said she came around the last curve. She was wondering all the way across the country, have I embarrassed my father? Have I brought shame on them? I've ignored all the advice. Nobody's going to accept me anymore. My kids will reject me. My, my siblings think I'm a fool. My parents will surely reject me. And when she rounded the last corner, she saw her father standing on the front porch walked down and opened the door, and he opened his arms, and he took her in, and he said, welcome home. No shame, no guilt, no continual punishment, we told you so. Just a hard reset. This is love. Love. 
Let's remember what real love is and reorder your love from there. It's Jesus who opens his arms to you and said there's no longer any need to live outside and certainly not into eternity. Come back to me for the first time or the thousandth time and let me reorder your loves. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, these are hard words at times from your Scripture, hard to understand, hard to listen to. But we thank you, thank you that you that you are willing to speak strongly to us because you love us too much to allow us to continue on in our destructive and our less fulfilling ways. I pray, O oh Lord, for that one who has, has his or her arms crossed in their hearts. I will not open my heart again to anyone, especially Jesus, this would be the day that you would break through and give them a new heart. And to that prodigal who is wandering and has tried to define love for himself or herself, that this would be the day that you bring them home and they find a father waiting for them who will celebrate their return and teach them again what it is truly to love and receive love. And for everyone else, the daily by looking to you, and especially on the Lord's day, you would reorder our love, beginning with the one who first loved us to the point even of giving his own son. Oh, Lord, please conquer our doubt of your love and replace it with worship. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.